First Thessalonians chapter three is where we're going to be this evening. Let's pray. Uh, actually, let's read. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into it. Does that sound good? Yes. Everyone awake this evening. Yes. I just love worshiping with you all. Can I just say, like, this kind of focus group? It's a little bit smaller, but you guys were like belting it in worship. And it was just beautiful. This, this room was filled with praise. It just blesses me. I just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for singing. Thank you, Joe and Aaron, for leading us in worship. Uh, but First Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. And it says, therefore, everyone say therefore. therefore. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone. And sent Timothy, everyone say Timothy. Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you. Everyone say establish you. And encourage you concerning your faith. Everyone say faith. Faith. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Verse 4. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation. Just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter has tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks we can render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Everyone say love. To one another and to all just as we do to you. So that he may establish. Everyone say establish. That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Jesus, we thank you that your word is living. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light to our path. We thank you that it is like honey to our lips. Jesus, we just thank you that you've given us this, your word. What a privilege it is to live in this century where we have access to these verses, where we can glean from it and where, where you speak from. And Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make your word come alive to us tonight. We pray, God, that you would deepen our faith. Would you establish our faith, Father? I pray for those that are facing opposition tonight. Lord, that are facing adversity, that are facing trials and tribulations and temptations. Jesus, would you be with them during that time, Father? And would you purify and strengthen their faith in the midst of all this? And in Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. In training to be an ocean lifeguard, it was evident who grew up swimming in the ocean and who grew up swimming in the pool. Okay, there was like two groups of us on that training day where we're applying. We have to run, like swim like a thousand meters in a particular time. And it's in the ocean that you have to do this training exercise. And it was very evident. Like some of these guys were from UCSB water polo team. But they struggled 
to swim in the ocean because the ocean was different than swimming in the pool. There was a difference, an obvious difference between the two. Those who grew up swimming in the ocean entered the ocean with a confidence because they'd grown accustomed to the opposition of the wind and the waves. They were stronger because of it. On the other hand, those who grew up in the swimming pool entered the ocean with a bit of timidity, hesitancy. The opposition of the winds and the waves actually discouraged them. For some of the opposition, like when, when lifeguard training would continue and it would be a big day where the wind was howling and the surf was pumping, some of them would be so discouraged by the opposition that they would drop out of lifeguarding altogether before the season actually began. And in the Christian walk, opposition can have a very similar effect. The opposition of trials and afflictions can either strengthen our faith or we can lose faith altogether. In fact, Jesus writes or speaks about this in Matthew chapter 13 himself. Do you remember the parable of the sower? After the parable of the sower, he gives the explanation and we read this in Matthew 13 verse 19. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along that path. Verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet It has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So do you remember that soil? There's four soils that he kind of talks about. And the rocky soil, the rocky ground, is when the seed or the word of God was planted and there was life for a second. But then it would, it, the roots, it, the, the word wasn't rooted down into the soil. And so when opposition or wind came, it just plucked on out. This is kind of the idea, it seems, that this was Paul's concern for the church of Thessalonica. As we previously mentioned in this series... Paul preached the gospel. He spent three weeks there in Thessalonica and the seed of the gospel fell on good soil. The Thessalonians received the gospel with joy. But Paul was concerned that the gospel had not rooted itself in the hearts of the church. He was concerned that they would only be able to endure for a while before they would lose their faith or before the soil would go bad. He was concerned that the tribulation and the persecution that they faced would discourage them to the point that they would lose their faith altogether. So here in chapter 3, we read that Paul sent Timothy to strengthen their faith, that they would have faith in opposition. And we're going to break down our time together this way. First, we're going to look at enduring faith in verses 1 through 5, then encouraging faith in verses 6 through 10, and finally establishing faith in verses 11 through 13. Let's begin with enduring faith, and let's read verses 1 through 5 again says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, endure not being with them, we thought it would be good to be left in Athens alone. And so Paul sends Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you. Everyone say establish. To establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. 
So Timothy is sent to Thessalonica by Paul with a two-fold mission. Did you catch that there in verse, what is that, verse 2? It is to establish and to encourage their faith. To establish and to encourage their faith. That's his goal. Paul's concerned that the soil is rocky ground. He's concerned that their faith wouldn't endure in the midst of persecution. So the goal of sending Timothy is to establish and to encourage their faith. His desire is that their faith would endure the affliction that they were facing. And it's an important idea to consider before we even continue, that the reality is, is that our faith can be strengthened. Our faith can be established. It's a classic thing, and we say it a lot here at Calvary Vista, that we've never fully arrived. There's always areas of our walk with Jesus that can be deepened, that can be strengthened, that can be established in the midst of the different trials and tribulations that we face in this world. And that's a good thing. None of us have arrived yet. And so the strengthening and the establishing of our faith is essential until we enter into glory. And so this is the idea that Paul has. He's excited to send Timothy that their faith might be established in that their faith might be encouraged. But this is the thing. A part of establishing our faith is that we must endure affliction. It's been said before that a faith that has not been tested is a... How many of you have heard that before? A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. I remember the first time I heard that phrase, I was at like the ripe age of 20, 21 years old. I don't know who allowed me to do this, but I oversaw this winter camp up in the central coast. There's like a few other churches there. And I was like terrified. I'm young. I just, I'd experienced Calvary Vista camps as like going as a Calvary Lompoc pastor. And I experienced camps with this church and been like, wow, that's awesome. We need this on the central coast. So, so uh, somehow Like these pastors just trusted me to put this thing together. And we go up there and we're prepping up this camp. And it was like, it was not a good camp. It needed a lot of love, okay? And um, and I remember we're, we're setting up the camp the day before it starts. And it's supposed to rain all weekend long. And like all my plans for like this epic camp that I had planned, just like went down the drain. And I remember this guy that I was, I was uh, driving there, we're driving a trailer. I wasn't even allowed to drive a trailer yet because I'm so young. And, um, and Jamie's like, hey, Tyler, have you ever heard the saying, a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that can't be trusted. And I'm like, no, I've never heard that. That's lame. Like, come on, I've got faith. What are you talking about, Jamie? But it's so true affliction, trial, tribulation, when our faith is tested on the other side of the testing, man, our faith is strengthened and it's deepened. You see, in this text, Paul gives us a phenomenal theology of trials, actually. He gives us here a theology of tribulation. According to Paul, we are appointed to affliction. Notice that in verse 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. He's like, we have been appointed to affliction, to suffering, to trials and temptations. They cannot be avoided. Jesus said the same thing. How many of you remember the verse in John chapter 16, verse 33, when Jesus said to the disciples, I said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, for in the world you will have 
tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And the context there in John 16 is that the disciples are eating the Last Supper with Jesus. And Jesus is telling them about the promise of the Helper, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's like, hey, you're going to need another just like me. You're going to need the Spirit of God. Because tribulations and trials and difficulty and suffering are not an option. They are inevitable for the follower of Jesus. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. James says the same exact thing. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face various trials or trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the goal that Paul has in sending Timothy to the church of Thessalonica is that their faith would be established, that they would be made complete, that they would be perfected. And the only way to get there is through enduring affliction. The only way to get there is experiencing temptation and trials and suffering and difficulty. So my friend, if you're going through any of that, you're in good company because every single follower of Jesus whose faith is being perfected had to go through the same exact thing. It's not because there's necessarily this great sin in your life, although some suffering comes from sin. But in general, there's suffering and trials and temptations that come and happen all over because God. God is testing, God is training, God is producing something within us. So according to Jesus, according to James, and according to Paul, these afflictions are not accidents, but they're appointments. They're not accidents, but they're appointments. So instead of us getting so frustrated and fired up, God, why, 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 why? Which is a natural thing to do. We can ask the question, God, why do you want to teach me in this situation? But again, the question is, why? Why do we suffer? Well, the number one reason we suffer or have to face trials, temptations, or suffering, or persecution, the number one reason is because we serve a suffering Messiah. Jesus suffered. Therefore, we suffer because the servant is not greater than the master. That in itself is the reason why. The second reason why we suffer when it's not due to our own sin is for our training. As James says, the testing of our faith produces perseverance or endurance. So suffering actually becomes training. In his book, The Truth About Lies, The Unlikely Role of Temptation in Who You Will Become, Pastor Tim Chaddock, who's now at Reality Ventura, he says this, quote, through, or says, quote, though temptation is authored by Satan for our destruction, it's allowed by God for our training, end quote. Though temptation is authored by Satan for our destruction, it's allowed by God for our training. He goes on to say, quote, Temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction, end quote. So trials, temptation is a form of trial. Temptation and trials can either be the knife that cuts us, we lose our faith, or it can be like the knife that feeds us, that, that's food for us and strengthens our faith. The point is, is that temptation and trials can either be used to strengthen us or to weaken us. 
Just like those ocean lifeguards who gain confidence through the opposition of the wind and waves, we can grow confidence or grow in faith through the face of opposition. Now, naturally, upon hearing a story or, or, or kind of a section of scripture like this, naturally, then the question would be like, Tyler, what if I can't do it? What if I can't make it? You're talking about trials, temptation. You don't know what I've walked through. Listen, can I, just, can I just pause and just say for a moment that Jesus empathizes and enters into your pain and your temptations and your struggles and your trials with you. You are not alone. He is with you. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He has not forgotten you. He is with you in the midst of that. And if it's too much for you, then take comfort in Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 32. This is Jesus talking to Peter. He says this in Luke twenty-two thirty-one: Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Notice the end of our verse here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Paul's concern is much like, like Jesus' concern with Peter, that the tempter is going to sift us. But the beauty of both Paul and Jesus is when Jesus tells Peter, hey, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But then he says, I am praying for you that your faith may not fail. So my friend, my fellow laborer in this thing called the Christian life, if you're facing trial or difficulty or persecution or suffering, did you know that the role of Jesus right now ascended upon the right hand of the Father, is that he's interceding for the saints. Not only is the Spirit with you in the midst of your suffering, but Jesus, the Son of God, is interceding for you in the heavenlies right now. That's remarkable. Like, I think we forget that. Like, as we study the book of Acts, we're like, sweet, Jesus resurrected. And then we're like, Pentecost. But between the resurrection and Pentecost, Jesus ascended and he's seated on the throne in complete control. And his role as he's seated on the throne is simply to intercede for the saints, which is you and me. He intercedes for us so that what? So that our faith may not fail. That's incredible that Jesus himself is saying your name in the heavenlies and praying for you in the midst of trials and difficulty as the enemy is trying to oppose. Jesus is praying for you. That is how you can handle it. That is how you can make it through the trial and the temptation and the suffering and the difficulties of this world because Jesus It's praying for you by name in the heavenlies. It's beautiful. That's powerful. So enduring faith. Here, the concern is to go there to Thessalonica that their faith might endure through suffering and opposition and trials and difficulties. Paul's concerned that the enemy is there, that the enemy is trying to choke out what God is doing, which brings us into number two, encouraging faith. Okay, encouraging faith. Let's read verses six through through uh, eight together. It says, but now... 
Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news. So Timothy's gone there and he's come back to Paul. And now he's writing. And he brought us good news of your faith and love that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So Paul sent Timothy to encourage the Thessalonians. But Timothy was the one who ended up being encouraged by the Thessalonians. Timothy went to do the encouragement and he's the one who received the encouragement. How beautiful. They had actually endured. The word of God had rooted into their hearts. He's seeing now, he shows up and he's like, man, I went to do all the encouraging and these guys are still on fire. They're standing in their faith and they're abounding in love. How awesome. And I got to say, even as a youth pastor, I've experienced that. I was telling Pastor Jesse up at camp this last weekend, it was epic. And we had some optional prayer meetings at 7 a.m. in the morning. Optional prayer meetings at 7 a.m. And a group of us leaders went to pray. We're praying that our students might be encouraged. And you know who shows up there? Students. At the optional 7 a.m. prayer meeting. I told Pastor Jesse, I said, one of those, those, those boys were there was his son Gabe. And he's there praying there with us. And I went to do the encouraging and I'm encouraged. I'm blessed, like hearing these these young people just cry out to God and hungry for God. I went to do the encouraging and I ended up just full and encouraged. This is the idea of what's happening here with with Paul and Timothy. They go to encourage the church and they say, oh my goodness, in spite of all the tribulations and trials and difficulties, this church is pumping. Like it's going on still. Like they are following Jesus and they are leaving encouraged. And I kind of think Paul's kind of classic here. Read with me verse 8. It's a little bit like uh, dramatic almost. He says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Like consider for a second all the trials and persecutions Paul went through. And he's like, you know the thing that's just going to like totally take me out? It's not like getting whipped and shipwrecked and beaten and like stoned to death. It's like if your guys' faith isn't strong, man, I'm done. Like, he's like, kind of like hyperbolic. Like, isn't that kind of dramatic, Paul? Like, now you're living because you've seen their faith. But I think this is really actually powerful. I I just kind of sense, as I was studying for this, we need to really resonate on this. He says, for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. I think that's so interesting. Because what Paul is saying is that he can actually breathe. He's strengthened and he's refreshed by the faith of other people. Meaning, Paul the Apostle, who is the Apostle of the church, he needed the church. He needed to hear the church sing on a Wednesday night during, was this winter focus? All the focuses, I forget. Winter focus. He needed to hear that. He needed to see their faith. And it's such a beautiful reminder. All through this book, I've been reminded that how Dependent, we are as a church to be upon one another. There's kind of a classic illustration of this. It's the illustration, how many of you guys have been to the Redwoods, the Sequoia National Forest? Okay, beautiful trees. Growing up, um, we went camping there up by Hume Lake almost every single year in the summer. And we just went camping not to like Hume Lake, the Christian camp. There's like an actual campground anyone can go to. And so we just like happened to like grow up going there. It was really 
amazing. But the, the sequoias, I mean, these things are like 300 feet tall, some of them. They can be 20 feet wide. But did you know that their root system actually isn't that deep? They're intertwined vertically, or sorry, horizontally under the ground. And all the other trees are rooted together that they might be established. That they might stand fast and stand tall in the midst of opposition. What a picture for us at the church as a reality and the call that we need to stir up one another in faith and good works. There needs to be a level of relational commitment in which we're rooted together that we might stand tall and stand fast in the midst of difficulty and opposition and adversity. Paul, the apostle, needed it. Jesus, as he's praying in the garden of Gethsemane, he's like, hey, boys, come and pray for me. And they fell asleep on him. Jesus needed it. How much more do we need one another? It's such a call, I think, in my own life of when I'm going through opposition or difficulty to make sure that I'm vulnerable and call someone and say, I need to pray for me right now. And it's such a reminder to me when I know that someone's going through opposition and not be like, oh, so-and-so is going to check in on them. Oh, I want to give them their privacy. Yes, I'm all about privacy and boundaries big time. But like to text them, just say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm here. If you need, if you need, if you need someone to talk, I'm here. What a call that we need to have that level of dependency upon each other. It strengthens our faith. Paul said, for now we live. If you stand fast in the Lord, he whose faith was dependent upon their faith in this kind of way to be strengthened and to be refreshed. Let's continue in verse nine. Continuing to talk about encouraging faith, he says, For what thanks we can render to God for you, for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So he's saying that he's encouraged, he's refreshed, he's strengthened. They're praying night and day, fervent, devout prayer and commitment to the church. Like I could pause right there. I just finished a book by Ian Bounds on prayer. And there's a whole chapter of the need for us as the church to be fervent people of prayer, praying for our pastors and leaders. And I am a pastor and leader that needs to be fervently praying for my pastors and leaders. Of just the call for us to be praying for one another and committed to prayer. This is Paul. He's praying. But what is he praying? That they might, he might see their faith and that their faith might be perfected or it might be complete, that it wouldn't be lacking. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, Rather speaking the truth in love, were to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The idea there is that Ephesians chapter 4 is that we need each other to be equipped and to be perfected in our walk. So this idea is being carried on. The need for one another to be equipped and to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to be built up. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 12, we read this. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling 
excuse me, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. That word stand mature is to be perfected. His prayer is that your faith might be perfected. And like a real quick, just like another real quick pause on this one. When it comes to the younger generations, when it comes to Gen Z and when it comes to millennials, believe me, I know it's easy to critique. But my goodness, we need to just stop and we need to just pray that their faith might be made complete, that their faith might be strengthened, that their faith might be deepened. And you know what? Paul's going to give us insight here on what that looks like. Let's continue in number three, establishing faith. So we've looked at the enduring faith. Afflictions are appointed. They're not accidents. We're all going to struggle and we need our faith. It's going to be, it's going to be persevered. It's going to be purified. We need to endure infliction. Then Paul sends Timothy. Timothy shows up and Timothy's blessed. He's encouraged because their faith is still going. But then we get this idea of establishing faith in verses 11 through 13. Let's read here Paul's prayer as his heart is still that their faith might be established or perfected or made complete. Verse 11. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Everyone say, in love. love. To one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul's prayer is threefold here. Number one, that they increase and abound in love. Increase and abound in love. Number two, to be established. Number three, to be blameless in holiness. And this link is absolutely remarkable. His goal is that they be established. Their faith would be established. What, what does that even mean? We didn't even like cover that. Their faith to be established means that they are persuaded. That their faith is just they have devout persuasion that God is who he says he is. And that they can trust in him. What does he link that establishing a faith to? He links that to an abundance or an abounding of love. Notice that. Now listen, I'm all about theology. I teach a core theology class here during the Equip Focus. I love apologetics. I love these things. But notice, Paul's prayer, as his goal is for their faith to be established, isn't that they would have incredible doctrine or an amazing apologetic defense. His prayer is that they would abound in the love of God. There is a direct link between the increasing of faith and the increasing of love. You could say the increase of love is an outward expression of an inward increase of faith. So if there's a decreasing of love in our lives, our faith is actually decreasing. There is a direct link between the establishment of faith and the establishment of love. Now, yes, apologetics, theology, defense, all about it 100%. But if it's not love, it's clanging symbols. Love was Paul's prayer, that they would abound in love. What did he commend them for? A few verses above, he commended them for their love. Notice that there, it's in verse... Six, he says, he brought us good news of your faith and love. Yeah, his prayer for them is that they would continue to abound in love. 
love, a love of God and a love for other people is what would establish their faith and then produce holiness. As you experience the love of God, to be holy is to be holy, uh, in the words of W-H-O-L-E-Y, to be wholly devoted, to be of one mind, singularly devoted to Jesus because the love and the holiness of God has impacted your life to where you only want to be devoted to him. Are you following? That's how our faith is to be established. Reminds me then of Luke chapter 6, verse 32. It's Jesus speaking. We'll wrap, the, wrap it up in just a moment. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do not do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lead to sinners. Lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But, verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. To love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you, to do, go, do good to those who harm you, that requires faith. And when others who are struggling in faith see people respond in that type of way, their faith is strengthened. Did you know that John 3.16 was not the favorite verse of the early church? You know what the famous verse was of the early church? Love your enemies. Which means a lot more to them than it does to us. Because their enemies weren't a political party or their enemies weren't some relational issue within the family. Their enemies were people that were slaughtering their loved ones and their family members. I love it. That's an impossible kind of love, isn't it? And that's kind of the point. To close, I want to share with you guys, if you don't already know what's going on right now. Uh, right now in Kentucky, at Asbury University, have you guys heard of what's happening there? There's a genuine work of the Holy Spirit that's going down upon that campus. On Wednesday morning at a chapel service, I watched the original chapel. The guy who spoke was not an eloquent speaker. He's just an ordinary millennial dude. I'm pretty sure he's wearing Burks. He's just like, had this message on Romans chapter 12. He's talking about loving those, like just loving people. And he just, he, he, he ended his little sermon on that type of love that we're reading about is impossible to do. In order to love other people with that type of love that our faith might be established, that we might abound in love, we first must receive the love of Jesus. Right? First John 4. We love because he first loved us. And he ended his little sermon in like a response time of confession and to just receive that type of love that we might love other people. And a few students came forward and started praying and they haven't stopped praying and worshiping since. That was a week ago. 24-7. Thousands of people have gone. And there is witness and testimonies of like this tangible presence of God in that building. There's no smoke machine. There's no lights. There's no epic worship leader in skinny jeans. It's just a bunch of like ordinary, ordinary like college students. They're just saying, I can't love in that way. I need the love of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is falling upon that place right now. Lord, do it again, amen. Establish our faith. 
We want holiness, he says, to establish our faith, abound in love, establish our faith, and then to be blameless in holiness. Well, that takes a humility. Say, God, I can't love other people like this. I can't stir up people in faith and good works. I can't do it. Bingo, that's the point. We can't. And then coming in humility, Jesus, I need all of you. And I want you to have all of me. That I can live this type of life. That I can face opposition and adversity and trials and temptations. Because this is difficult. Exactly. But he's given us a helper. He's given us the Holy Spirit. We'll end today with Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. It's a similar prayer to what Paul's praying here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. In Ephesians 3 he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from who the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in Love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ is to be filled with the the fullness of God so then we can be established in our faith and love other people in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus. So Jesus, we come before you. We ask, Lord, that you would do it again. We pray for a revival here at Calvary Vista, Jesus. We pray for a revival here in North County. We pray for a revival, Lord, within our own hearts. We confess that this type of abundance of love, this, this type of firm faith, Jesus, we can't do it apart from you. So, Lord, would you help us Would we be able to comprehend the height and the width and the depth and the length of your love, Jesus, that you poured out upon the cross? Would you so fill us with your love that we'd be filled with the fullness of God, that we'd be filled with faith, persuasion, Lord, that you are good, that you are enough, and to live for you and you alone, that others might just be in awe of your power working in and through us. Jesus, would you begin that with us, we ask and we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen, amen.